You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage at work, at home and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard. Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting the Yes And. Uh, today's podcast is with Moshik Temkin, who is the Distinguished Visiting Professor of Leadership and History at Schwarzman College, uh, Tsinghua University, and a faculty affiliate at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. He is the author of The Sacco Vansetti Affair, American Trial, which was a finalist for the Condale History Prize. He's got a new book. It's called Warriors, Rebels, and Saints, The Art of Leadership from Machiavelli to Malcolm X. This is a really, even though it's about history, it is a very timely read for what's going on now in the world. And I think you'll really enjoy our conversation. Enjoy the pod. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Moshik Temkin, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. In the author's note that opens your new book, you talk about a question that you pose to the students in your class at Harvard, and you ask them, quote, do leaders make history or does history make leaders, end quote. And I'm wondering what's the most common response you get? Well, uh, I think the intuitive response that I tend to get, not always, but very commonly, is this idea that leaders make history. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think that that's really because that's the culture that's around us. And it's the way that we learn about things. I don't mean just the way we learn things at school, but just the way that we kind of get um, our stories from films, from TV, from books, from, you know, what, what have you. It's this idea of great, well, it used to be great men. Yes. Uh, sometimes also great women, but mo- mostly for, you know, for a long time in history, a lot of great men and how they changed the world. Um, and how that great, they, you know, the, through their, uh, brilliance or importance or ruthlessness, uh, sometimes they're evil. Uh, they created enormous change. And, and of course, those things are, uh, to some extent true. Uh, and the book looks at individual leaders, but we also have to look at what world they're stepping into. So that's the second part of the question. But I think the early, the early answer I get is leaders make history. And then when people start to reflect, they might come up with a different answer. Well, yeah. And I know this is something that we, when we're teaching our work in improvisation, uh, a lot of it is, 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 is upsetting our own patterns of thinking. So we mm. tend to want to think linear, in a linear manner. We, we look for uh, patterns that make sense to us. 
And part of when you are creating, making something out of nothing, uh, we understand that you, you, you need to break patterns and that's where you make sort of discoveries. And this duality, which is that I think what you probably say is leaders do make history and history makes leaders, that, that those, both those things happen. And it's just the same way one approaches this idea around failure too, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, we're so uh, um, scared of failure and what we know in in our improvisational pedagogy Mm -hmm. is like, that's where all the good stuff is. It's like, and that's where you learn. Uh, And you, you actually say in the book quote, learning from leadership is not just about success. We can learn just as much, sometimes more from failure end quote. Um, That's right. And I think you, you say that because that is not the, the direction that most people go in. And that certainly fights the great man theory. Yeah, so that's right. So I think a part of this is coming again from very in a very impressionistic way. If you walk into a bookstore, and this, I'm especially thinking of bookstores and you know the the classic trope of the airport bookstore, right? And yeah. you looking at books there on leadership. The leadership really means uh, it's often in the business world or the financial world or other kinds of, but it's it's really about success. It's almost um, that what's that's what it means. It actually means how did i how did i succeed or how did this person succeed and but we see that in history leadership doesn't always work that way it's not always about success and it, mm-hmm. it sometimes ends in failure uh and sometimes the really interesting cases is when you get a debate about whether or not a case was a success or a failure right, right. They, there are leaders that are very controversial and they leave controversial legacies so even decades or 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 centuries later uh, you get historians, but even just history buffs or people just arguing, hey, this person was successful. No, this person was actually uh, a failure. So I think the lessons that we learn uh, the most from can be in all three categories, the success category, the failure category, and the mixed category. And the mixed category, because we're humans, and we have our strengths and weaknesses, that's the most common category. That's the largest category. And I think too, and you you alluded to this just now, which is like we, these narratives, these stories. We're, we're story monsters, right? That that that, that is how we learn mm-hmm. them. It, it's it's the way we think. And 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 I imagine the reason you start with the sort of King David story here is because you see that as foundational uh, to the way we think about leaders. So I want you to maybe unpack a little bit of that that story and 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 why you start with it. Well, I, I start with the, the story of King. So, just by background, the story of King David. There's a lot about King David in uh, in the in the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, right? And uh, this particular story I included uh, because it's the story of, in a sense, his fall from from the, the grace of God. Because he commit, he's a, of course, he was chosen by God and he's anointed by God and he's the great, you know, King David and. People understand King David, especially if you're religious people, you know, they understand King David as a, as a great figure. But here we have a story of the circumstances of King David's marriage with Bathsheba and the, 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 the death of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. Uh, without going into too much detail, this is a, a story in which David really sins and shows, uh, terrible weakness and, uh, selfishness and is told by the prophet Nathan as a result of this that he will suffer in his own family. And the implication is that God will be directing that suffering. So the story here is that King David, although he's a powerful king, he's ultimately accountable to a higher power, which is the power of God. And God is a substitute in our history in that period for morality. That's really what mm-hmm. God re- God represents. And so from the earliest time, uh, you know, we have 
uh, had a conception of leadership in which, on the one hand, a leader, say a monarch, a king, is all-powerful, and we must obey that king also because the king is chosen by God. But the king cannot do whatever he wants because the king ultimately has to operate within the confines of the parameters of morality as represented by God. And so what we have here is a kind of theological conception of leadership. And because we live in a culture that comes from these mythological sources— in the Bible and Western culture and other cultures have their own mythological sources with similar stories. Those are the leaders, leadership models that are in our heads. We get them through stories. We get them through our culture. They pass from one generation to the next. And we live in a modern era. We have very different conceptions. We have contradictory conceptions of leadership, but that is really the foundational story of how leadership emerges. So I wanted people to, as they read the book, to kind of understand where our original ideas of leadership come from. Anybody who comes into my class or anybody opening this book already has images of leaders in their head. And I often do this exercise. I tell uh, my students, uh, quickly, tell me uh, a leader, a leader that it pops into your mind. And very often it'll be someone important, some someone great. And I said, well, Let's examine the sort of collective history of why you tend to actually give very similar answers. That's because we all come in a way from these similar sources. So I wanted to look at that and then move on to the way that our understanding of leadership has evolved over time. I thought, too, there was a it seems obvious when you say it out loud, but it it wasn't to me until I read it in the book was this idea that like the truly important leaders that we think of, none of them uh, didn't face a crisis. That 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 is like that it was all good times, which in which indeed would be probably great leadership of its own if they we never right. heard of this person, everything went great. So the only thing we have seemingly is the Churchillian type figure, Roosevelt, other people you talk about in the book, Gandhi, right. uh, who who are are again either defined by their crisis or their crisis helps define them. Right. Right. Um, I think, yes. So uh, very often the teaching of leadership, if you want to look at it in the sort of, you know, in the academic world or in my world, it's very often associated with management, actually. So, you know, you, 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 the management studies, that's a very common thing. And that, that's very important. But that's not what the book is about. The book is not about management because I associate management. I mean, you can manage a crisis, but really we're looking at leadership in, let's say, times of stability, peacetime, when things are good. You know, I, I don't know when the last time we had that, but that's sort of, the, let's, yeah. let's take the case of, uh, Herbert Hoover, right? You mentioned FDR. You really can't understand FDR's presidency and its significance without looking at his predecessor because Herbert Hoover, sometimes we forget, was elected in 1928 at a time in which the economy was seemingly doing good. And it was it was a stable time, seemingly, for, you know, at least the perception was that nothing could go wrong. And this was boom time. Um, and he's elected in uh, in this moment and is a very widely admired uh, public servant uh, because of his entrepreneurship and his humanitarian activity and yeah, et cetera, et cetera. The list is long. And he also comes from a fairly modest background. So he kind of built himself up. He's a great American story and he's very popular. But then one year later, the crisis hits the Great Depression, the collapse of, of, of the, the, of Wall Street. And, uh, we 
even today, people don't realize just how bad that crisis was. It, uh, it's even today, it's underestimated. And when the crisis hit, it turned out that Herbert Hoover, for all his talents, was not the man for a crisis, not the leader for a crisis. The leader for a crisis turned out to be the FDR. Uh, now, FDR, we don't know how he would have been as a peacetime president or in a president time of stability. Maybe he would have been completely unimportant. Maybe he would have been a disaster. We don't know because the whole time that he was in office, uh, it was a crisis, the Great Depression, and then World War II, and he was elected by the American people four times in landslides, which means that he was the right leader that the public turned to in a moment of crisis. And so when you can compare and contrast Herbert Hoover, I see one man as being the leader for a moment of stability, the other leader, FDR, the leader for a moment of crisis. And because of that juxtaposition, that comparison, it becomes clear that it's the crisis that produces the more transformative, more significant, more memorable leader that leaves a larger, more important legacy. And to me personally, it's just more interesting. Yeah. And when you talk about FDR, you know, because he comes from privilege and there was a sort of a dilettante aspect to, to mm-hmm. him, Absolutely. maybe even an unserious aspect to him. But I think yeah. what's interesting is then when you, when you sort of um, uh, suss out a bit is that this congeniality, this, this tact, this ability to like read or work a room then becomes so important in your ability to communicate uh even something that isn't necessarily true, but is a hope to be true. I guess Kennedy had that a bit too, from when I talked to my parents about the way that, you mm-hmm. know, he, he communicated at that time too. But that, that's, that's really interesting. And, and I, and I, then I think it's also fascinating when you talk about Truman inheriting uh, the war, but then this decision to drop the bomb. Right, right. And the fact that you kind of say, you can't really necessarily say that it was his decision, even though, Maybe it was his decision, and and that 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 was also new thinking to me that I appreciated. Yeah, thank you. So I think with, uh, you're right. The, so first with FDR, I think yeah. growing up with privilege is is fascinating, right? He, not just, also Eleanor Roosevelt. They come from the same place. They're cousins, and they both come from you know the Hudson Valley, and they're American aristocrats. So we would actually expect, it's ironic, we would expect the Herbert Hoover to handle a crisis because he comes from the modest background. He's the one who comes from sort of, you know, ordinary. And an um, economist, right? Or at least an economic background. Yeah, it's a very, yeah, and he has all this knowledge. He's self, you know, self-made and and FDR, you're right, not just a dilettante. He's like a, you know, a frat boy in college. He he wasn't, I mean, he had the great last name. Because yep, he's a yep, distant yep. cousin of the of Theodore Roosevelt, and he he at age very young age when he's a mediocre student, he decides he's going to be president. He's clearly very entitled and and self you know has this this grandiose vision of himself. And of course, there's the story, uh, the important story of him getting polio uh, sure. later on, and 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 all kinds of things that happened to him. But I think ultimately, what it, the, there's two ingredients here that are really important. One is. This kind of idea that comes from Richard Hofstadter, the great historian, about his and Eleanor's conception of noblesse oblige, which is that even though he comes from privilege, he has that responsibility 
to see himself as in the same boat with everybody who is not in that privilege. And that we live in a society now where that is almost inconceivable, right? Because it's every man, woman, child, and invalid for themselves, right? In the jungle. Uh-huh. Um, and he has that very strong collective conception of, you know, all of us being together. And that helps him become an extremely effective communicator. And he was adored by poor people in particular. Uh, in fact, his popularity is what uh, arguably saved the system, the political system and the economic system from what happened in other countries during the Great Depression, which is the collapse of these liberal democracies all over Europe and other places in favor of authoritarians uh, because of the perception that only these authoritarians could protect the people from catastrophe and disaster. So Roosevelt had that. The other thing that he had, which people didn't understand or appreciate, was ruthlessness. Mm. Uh, Just, you know, even the way he handled other institutions that tried to set back the New Deal. Uh, The Supreme Court case is a famous one, the famous so-called court packing scheme, which was often seen as, especially by elites, as this bid for dictatorial power on FDR's part and an overstepping of boundaries where he kind of, uh, you know, turned from Democrat to dictator because he basically told the Supreme Court that he he's going to appoint more justices until he gets a majority for uh, for the New Deal measures. But what people don't realize is that FDR had, in a sense, larger fish to fry than to protect the prestige of the Supreme Court because right. he was trying to feed the American people who were literally starving, and and, and he was trying to protect the actual existence of democracy in the country. So if he had to sacrifice the feelings of, you know, elite institutions um, and these arrangements and the, the, the norms that, that kind of governed elite life, he would going, to, he was going to do it uh, for the larger, for the larger good. So there's a ruthlessness there that made him controversial, still makes him controversial today. But as a historian, I have to kind of admire him for succeeding in what he, in what he set out to do. And ultimately, uh, promoting the public good and the proof, to use a, a cliche, is in the pudding because the overwhelming support that he received from the so-called New Deal coalition showed that um, people were were convinced. People were convinced yeah. that he was actually doing what he's what he said and saying what he was doing. Well, and the results of the WPA are actually still felt. Today, I mean, mm-hmm. absolutely. Every every year, there's a mural that gets uncovered that someone's like, "Oh my God, this thing is beautiful!" You know, and 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 the idea. Knew- Go ahead. No, I was just saying. I just just to add to your point, yeah. he knew, as opposed to a lot of politicians, that artists also have to eat. Yes. Um, and uh, writers and artists and actors and. Uh, People need to uh, need to survive. That's their yeah. job, right? Yeah. And they're all out of work. So yeah. he put everybody to work, uh, writing, uh, painting, doing all these things. And uh, and then you have it's a, it's a, it's actually a stroke of genius because a you're putting everybody to work. That's already good. Second, you're creating a whole world of artists who are committed to you and your. A political project it turns the new deal from an not just a, an important economic arrangement to but to a powerful cultural and attractive cultural institution and it gets the the most eloquent talented people in the country to be singing your praises 
And so that, that is, you know, it's a triple whammy as it were. And, and I think that he understood that he, it wasn't that he was a particularly artistic minded person. He wasn't, uh, he wasn't very intellectual either. Uh, but he had these very intuitive understandings of what it meant both to succeed politically, he was a great politician, but also to do what needed to be done for the better, for the common good. And that gets to this, uh, this, this point we, we did touch on it earlier, but th- that, that, um, there's never one party. Like there's not one thing going on. There, there are multiple. We are interconnected. And, and especially I think in America, which is so uh, like, and, and I know this too coming out of, you know, a, a very sort of sixties mentality of individualism. And then, and then recognizing as I get older that like, n- no, we don't do any of this alone. Unfortunately, we've probably gone so far down that route mm. that, that it's gone to ridiculous lengths. And I couldn't help. But sort of read this book in, in, in light of when, when we're recording this with this horrible war in, in Gaza. And, and you talk about uh, movements of re- rebellion and the definitions and that one person would call what one person calls um, uh, a terrorist. Another person would call a rebel. And I can't help but thinking like to the English, um, the uh, founding fathers here were terrorists. I mean that that's that seems obvious. Uh, and, we and so, have, oh. yeah, no, I think that's an excellent point. We have many important countries that have this kind of dual history of both being founded uh, in rebellion, mm-hmm. uh, but then also becoming oppressive themselves uh, or imperialistic themselves. There are many examples of this. Uh, you know, if you think of the United States, it's a great example. Uh, you're right. Uh, it was founded in rev- in revolution. Uh, mm-hmm. In violence, uh, and the, I'm sure the British, the, you know, the British, the English, the, you know, the 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 monarchy in England did not consider the the revolutionaries to be what we consider them today as these great founding fathers, but to be you know these re- rebels that needed to be defeated um, and uh, terrorists, to use a, a, a more modern modern word. Um, we, we also know that you know, there's other countries, uh, China, India, the list is long of countries that had to gain, or Israel also is a good example of this, because these are countries that gained their independence through rebellion. They had been, uh, had these histories of being oppressed or being under colonial control, and then themselves become, when you're a sovereign country, then you also are often dealing with uh, people that want freedom from you uh, or from under your control. And so we see that all over the world. And I think that it's very interesting that people tend to uh, to identify with that first part of their history, but be more in, uh, actually being more involved in the second part of their of that history. Uh, so there's a gap there between people's self-perception and people's actual you know work, the work that they do and the things that they that they do in life. So I guess that and the thing without asking you how to solve the conflict in Gaza, um, this is not new. Uh, right. But but I think what you what your book does is help provide um, a different way, a, a different frame, uh, a different frame to see this from a variety of perspectives at at a, a, a whole because if, if and I, I think this is what I got out of the book in terms of you even talking about Algiers in particular, mm-hmm. um, and I remember graduating college and i did that classic backpacking across europe that was my my present for my mm. and i uh, was uh, on a train and my friend steve and i two algerian uh young people about our age talking us, to us about about uh their experience and and dealing with racism and and, and other mm-hmm. uh, other uh, factors 
and and just sort of f- feeling like we have such a simplistic view of these things um, when we're not inside of them, A, and, and B, that, again, tale as old as time, the, 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 these conflicts and, and why we don't seem to learn or grow or figure out better, better ways. Um, uh, I, I, I don't have, I don't think anyone has the answer to that, but I can't help but think an understanding of not just your history, but other histories would help leaders in these times of crisis. Yeah, I think the word that comes to mind for me is empathy. Yeah. Um, I know that sound, that sounds, I don't know how that sounds. Maybe it sounds soft or wishy washy. Po- yeah, Pollyannish, but it's, it's so lacking. Um, the, the, I'm not saying that, you know, there, there certainly isn't, I don't have a, sorry, I can't solve, uh, yes, you're right. I cannot solve the current crisis. Uh, I have ideas about it, but I don't think I can solve it offhand. Um, but I do, th- what I see at the heart of it is, uh, a form of, uh, a, a kind of mutual, I'm sorry to say this, but there's a kind of mutual dehumanization going on where to commit the kinds of acts that we, we saw and uh, to have this level of violence and brutalization of civilians. Um, and right now it doesn't matter who the, no. you know, where the civilians live or who they are. It's just civilians, children, right? Um, who are by definition innocent. I will never accept that children are not innocent victims because we've actually lived now in a world seemingly where children are legitimate targets for many. And I, I find that, uh, I, I just don't have it in me to even consider that as a, as a, as a, as a, as, a, as anything that could be considered within any standards of morality I can think yes. of. Um, so when we have that level of dehumanization, we really have to start from the bottom um, and insist on people's common humanity. And again, I know I'm using terms, people might be listening and saying, well, this, this man isn't, can't help us with anything practical because he's talking about, you know, things like that. But that's where we are. That's, yeah. I really think that that's where we are. We have leaders very often who lack an ability to simply see human beings on the other side of conflicts um, and to understand that human beings are susceptible to falling into the worst kind of uh, behavior, thoughts, and also actions uh, because of the history that they're living through. We see it over and over again in history. So even the Battle of Algiers, but all the colonial situation, colonialism, people talk a lot about anti-colonial violence. And it was many of the anti-colonial struggles were extremely violent. But it's also it's forgotten in that context that there was colonialism before that that was extremely violent. Yeah. Um, and we don't even now have the appreciation for just how violent it was. Some of it was kind of swept away. Some of it is often ignored. And there's a lot of revisionism going on nowadays about colonialism and its, and its history. So without, obviously, without justifying any horrible acts, we must insist that we are ourselves the products of history. No one is outside or above history, but also that we have the ability to change history. We have the ability 
to step out of the frame that we're in and look at what we're doing, see what we're doing, and maybe change paths. And I, I, that's hard to do. So you, the example of Truman, get back yeah. to the example. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's perfect. It's really interesting. Now, I, I don't have any strong thoughts about, you know, and everybody's, I guess a lot of people saw Oppenheimer and there's a notorious scene, Gary Oldman, brilliant. I didn't even recognize him. He's so good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's same. playing Truman. Uh, and, and of course, Truman comes off as completely uh, sort of the glib about, you know, using the bomb. And I don't know if that's fair or not. I wasn't there and I don't, I'm not, you know, there are records that he was, but Truman learned about the bomb very late. Yeah. Uh, it had already been developed. It had been ordered. He, he inherited a war as a president that was decades, if not longer in the making. And uh, there's a very powerful global momentum in which these leaders found themselves in that moment in 1945. So he's making a formal decision to use the bomb. But th- is he really the decision maker? Is he really the author of the use of the bomb? I doubt it. Um, there are many other figures that we can talk about. And we also know that, uh, or can assume that had the Japanese had the bomb or the Nazis had the bomb, which is what Oppenheimer feared, um, or the British you know, that I don't see why they would not use it where the Americans would, right? I don't think Americans by nature are inherently different from other people in the world. They just had uh, or have uh, a different kind of power, military power, technological power at their disposal in the context of total war. And so that's why with Truman, I think it's a fascinating case of you know, writing about Truman and decision is is important, but it's only a sliver of looking at that kind of leadership case, which is in a sense about a whole mechanism of things happening where it's very hard to identify one particular leader who is responsible for it. So there's no way we can cover all the uh, different great interesting leader uh, johnson i think is a lyndon johnson yeah. is a fascinating uh, story malcolm x and, and and martin luther king the one that i because it, it's it's towards the end of the book that i want to talk a bit about is margaret thatcher uh mm-hmm. so i'm 57 years old and uh and a creature of my, the, the c- culture i'm in and and certainly uh a british pop music at that time would be my, mm-hmm. my culture and i'd mm-hmm. like there's a very specific elvis costello song that came out after she died called tramp the dirt down literally just basically very vile things you would say about someone who, who died. Oh, yeah. And and I don't recall anyone blinking an eye of like, how could you do that? Which, you know, with, with other leaders would be. So she's a complicated figure also in terms of the, you know, a, a, a female leader um, mm-hmm. who, who sort of was at odds with sort of how we consider feminine behavior um, but certainly today, where we talk, where, where the social scientists will talk about uh, great female leaders because they have empathy, because they know how to tell stories, because they relate to people, and it doesn't feel like Thatcher. There was like zero empathy in terms of the way she she led. So, to, what what brought you to like bring her into this 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 later chapter of the book? So uh, that's a good question. There, some of it is what you just said, right? That, yeah. that you know, and you, that you raised the point. Another part of it is that the way I set that last part of the book up is sort of, it's about the the leaders who made our world and the leaders that I think our world needs. Um, and I put her, that that she's the first part of the chapter. I consider Margaret Thatcher to be uh, the, whatever one thinks of her, 
yeah. right? To be the most important, most influential, most impactful political leader of her generation. Um, and not just in Britain and not just because of what she did in Britain, but, but just psychically in terms of how we think about our world and the, the impact that she had on our economy and our, our thinking about ourselves, right? That famous statement, there is no such thing as, Society. There are only individual men and women and there are families, right? And her rejection of any kind of collective model, right? Rejection of feminism. She only really represents herself as a woman, but not any kind of movement. Um, that's a contrast that really interested me. So if you recall, she's played in The Crown by uh, Gillian Anderson, who's, who's brilliant uh, in, in the role, as she always is. But she she <laughs> goes to see the Queen for the first... I don't know if you people remember seeing The Crown, which is really interesting. She goes to see the Queen for the first time. They famously did not particularly get along that well. Uh, but in that first meeting, according to The Crown, uh, the, the Queen tells her, well, uh, I like to play a game, which is that uh, with every prime minister, which is that I'd like to guess who's going to be in their cabinet. May I play the game with you? And Thatcher says, sure. And she says, well, certainly you will have women in your in your cabinet. And Margaret Thatcher says, oh, no, 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 no. I will not have any women. I find that women are far too emotional to be in political leadership, which is such a strange statement yeah. to make. You're Margaret Thatcher. You've just been elected prime minister. You're a woman. She makes that same, And the queen has nothing to say. She just looks at her stunned silence. Um, so I think that's Margaret Thatcher in a way, in terms of the, the woman part of the leadership in a nutshell, right? The fact that she's now at the pinnacle of power as a woman and she very much wears that role, right? The, the the dress and the grooming and the statements about how women, only women can do things and so on and so forth. But her cabinets were always male. Every time you look at a picture, she's sitting in the middle in her blue dress surrounded by, you know, gray-suited, gray-haired, generic-looking con- conservative party men, uh, which is quite a s- striking kind of picture to look at. Um, at the same time, Margaret Thatcher was... Uh, transcended that. Like her, her role was so important. Um, what she did in terms of not just how we behave politically, but how we, how we think. So I wanted to write about her in that context. And by the way, when she died, that was 20, she died in nine, in 2013. That's 20, almost 23 years after she left office. That's an entire generation. Yeah. Um, and so think about the reaction to her death was so powerful, right? Uh, and, and even the kind of street parties that were happening at the time and graffiti on the walls mm-hmm. and so on and so forth. That's very impressive for someone who has been, she wasn't even, she had been in cognitive decline. So she wasn't even in public life at that point. Mm-hmm. Right. So that just shows you how powerful the legacy was. So I wanted to kind of juxtapose her with the model of the MLK and, and Malcolm X that I actually grouped together because in my view, they, they, well, they were very different from each other and it's a completely different context, right? In which they, the things they fought, they, uh, the time they were active in and so on, they had a much more collective yeah. uh, vision for social progress and advancement. It wasn't based on individual success. It wasn't based just on sort of economic markers. It was, or economic individual markers. It was based on collective progress, right? The idea that we either move together, move forward together, or, you know, no one does, right? And, and that was, I think, 
uh, a model that I was suggesting is a little bit of what we need today. Yeah. And since we're living in Thatcher's world. What I think what I what I was getting out of where you were going with this is like that someone of um, Thatcher's um, uh, import uh, stature mm-hmm. abil- ability like to 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 play a role, but in terms of inspiring the the, the collective, because it, it, it's I, and I completely agree on this, and this is the heart of our, our our work here, which is like we have a phrase in improv: "All of us are better than one of us," and it's that it's that mm. it's, it's that, it, it, and also the, the leadership model here is is one that we ascribe to a, a concept called "follow the follower," uh, which mm-hmm. is that we are we are trading off our leadership at any given situation when different expertise is needed at the front, and it's it's not an, it's not that someone is like not a leader. It's like at this moment, I'm letting you lead. And then, and then I will be mm-hmm. able to follow, and then I am going to lead. And that seems so unnatural to our physiology, to our brains, to our psyche. Uh, and yet in the greatest collective acts. So here it's theater, but it's also the greatest orchestra. It is your, your best soccer team. It is like all those, the groups is, it need, uh, need that sort of collective leadership at any given moment. It's a terrific model that just doesn't seem to get used. And, and I, and yeah. I feel like you're, you're kind of saying, saying that as well a bit uh, through the lens of this book. Yes. I think that, you know, for, for me, uh, one of the things that makes, uh, MLK and Malcolm X, very impressive in that sense, is think about, you know, what kind of standing do they have? What kind of uh, institutional position do they hold? They don't. Margaret Thatcher is a head of state. Uh, FDR is a head of state. If you look at, you know, the book has dictators who are, you know, they're in complete control of their countries, their governments. Um, What is MLK's strength? He has his, he has his cause. He has his eloquence. Um, He has his his ability is his, his his ability to kind of galvanize people. He has charisma, although I, I charisma is not something that I can rigorously or scientifically That's right. analyze or, or measure. But it's there, you know. People have acknowledged it, or people talked talked about it. Um, and yet, look at the uh, power that he was able to wield, and and the change that he was able to to affect. Uh, uh, at the same time. Also has to, I, I kind of wanted to write about him as well because uh, to show how a kind of a message gets diluted over time or gets yeah. legacy can get whitewashed as it were because MLK wasn't just about saying you know he's used now by everybody saying oh we should be colorblind or you know there's no such thing as you know you talking about uh, uh, racism is in itself. An affront because, you know, if you quote Martin, no, he was being very explicit about the importance of racism, but he was also linking it to a lot of other things that don't get as much play. For example, the fact that he insisted that racism and poverty, economic conditions and militarism were uh, integrally tied and that you could, could not separate them, right? That part of his legacy doesn't um, get as much play. And I suspect that if you were around in our own day, tra- transported, he wouldn't get the same kind of attention simply because if you look at his actual views, they're almost out beyond the pale of what yeah. gets, uh, gets into the sort of a lot of our media, unfortunately. Whereas back then, for whatever reason, he did get, you know, center stage and he met with 
President Johnson and they, you know, pushed together for, you know, for laws to be passed uh, that completely changed the situation of civil rights in, in the country. So I wanted to show also not just about how leadership plays out in its own time, but what kind of legacy it leaves and how we remember leaders over the long term. I had dinner a couple months ago with Jonathan Eig, who wrote the terrific King biography mm-hmm. that's out mm-hmm. now. Mm-hmm. And what was interesting in talking to him was the biggest obstacle he had with regard to writing that book was the caretakers to the King legacy, not wanting him to tell the full story. Mm. And, and just, it, it, and this, this idea of, of, you know, wanting to protect the, this, the sort of pristine image, which to me, I, I find the, the, the sort of, especially with the stuff that we've um, read about Lincoln, I compare that to, which is we feel very comfortable talking about the nuance and the struggle and, you know, whether it's mental illness and other things that, 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 that that just makes it a more interesting character. And I wonder if the, the, the King death is just too close for those who were related or, you know, in in that case, but it's, it's, I think the complexity is, is where all the good stuff is because these are humans. They're, 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 they're not gods. And and they don't they don't need to be and I don't think we learn from anything if we consider them gods. I think that their humanity is is at the root of what's interesting for when they succeed and when they fail and what we're gonna what we're gonna get out of that in the future to hopefully make better decisions, which we never seem to, sadly. Yes, uh, and the other thing that he was, uh, as was Malcolm X, was uh, young, very young, very young, uh, thirty nine. Now you and I probably remember a time when we thought, oh, thirty nine. We got that's it. old. Like thirty nine. That's like that's nearing the We're, end of life. It all figured out. We're uh, done. Now we realize yes. thirty nine. How just how young that is to end yeah. your life. Not to for some people. It's it's even to begin your career, let alone yeah. end your yeah. life. So not only that, but they. So think of the gravitas of two men. Very different, by the way. Different education, different backgrounds, different. You know, but both of them. Uh, dead, assassinated, killed uh, at age 39, knowing each of them, telling us publicly yeah. that there was going to happen. Because yeah. MLK's last speech, uh, Been to the Mountaintop, is really a prophecy about him being imminently killed. I mean, and and it wasn't an accident that it would happen when he was, you know, down in Memphis trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, work on the, uh, on the sanitation strike which was yeah. connecting precisely the issue of labor rights and poverty with the issue of of ongoing racism and Malcolm X also said um constantly before he was killed that he was about about to be killed so think about what kind of leadership it is to have families children at age 39 knowing that your life uh, will probably be cut short and still remaining as determined as you are and continuing forward, that's that makes us sheepish, right? Because yeah. all of us, not you and I, but everyone who cares yeah. about these things, because there they are, in a throwing caution to the wind and just remaining committed to their cause. Um, while we read this, right? I write this book, or anybody reads this book in, in a fairly comfortable, safe uh, situation. That that's hard to. I want people. To live long lives, I want them to thrive. I don't want them dying at age thirty-nine. So I want MLK and Malcolm X to inspire us. But my ideal world, we have an MLK and Malcolm X who inspire us, and they create a better world. But they don't have to 
sacrifice their lives. They don't have to die. They don't have to be killed. Um, so again, I'm sounding a little bit Pollyannish, but that that is my that is my ideal version of of leadership, where you can have the good cause and you can have success. Yeah, I love it. We always end the podcast asking our guests for a yes and story. Do you have one for us? I do. It's going to be. Fair. Very different uh, from everything I've been talking about because it's much, much lighter. My life is far less uh, interesting than all the people that I write write about. And I'm I'm a very very dull person. But uh, I I do recall when I found my, I was on my uh, family vacation. I was with my, my, uh, my, my kids in, in, in Yucatan, Mexico. And uh, we made an arrangement to go on a day trip, except I didn't realize when I got there, that this day trip was uh, a really crazy kind of zipline adventure. And when I say zipline, it's not like going to a little amusement park. It was like being taken over like these jungle-like. And I have I have never, I'm not a physically brave person. I suddenly found myself in, you know, tied up with mm-hmm. these very young Mexicans telling me, no, you can go and you're going to be safe. <laughs> I just had a panic attack. Uh, and normally at that point, all my instincts said, you got to say, no, don't, don't do this. Yeah. yeah. This is going to, but I said, you know what? I said, yes, and let's go. And I took off. <laughs> I'll never forget it. I took off on that zip line. I was very high up above this jungle, just gliding down there. And suddenly I felt very free and confident. Oh. So it's a safe, it's, I know it's an anodyne. Uh, story, but for me that oh, moment I felt it. that I I I had somehow confronted a, a fear that I had. It's I will say you know I didn't actually had to. It's not like hang gliding or or jumping out of a plane, but still I do remember that kind of vividly that feeling of physical physical freedom and afterwards feeling fair, uh, too proud of myself in a way. I think uh, the I think exposure th- uh, uh, therapy is a yes and. <laughs> so speaking as someone who has a fear of heights that was becoming problematic and working with my oh. therapist on it, it was like good for you and, and discovering that and then being like, oh, my God, this is like it, it is incredibly freeing because you, you, you've tackled a thing. Um, and so those yep. and look, how are we going to get over the, the really big obstacles if we can't get over the little ones that are in front of us every day? These these are the gifts that, that, that were handed. Uh, the book is called Warriors, Rebels and Saints. The Art of Leadership from Machiavelli to Malcolm X. Mushik Temkin, thank you for coming on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Oridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Survive.